Herb Elper in the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly appearance, his weekly Monday appearance, is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And, as he usually does, Dave Cameron utilizes this edition of the podcast to analyze all baseball. Firstly, uh, it's possible that the listener has heard by now that Steven Strasburg was officially shut down after his Friday start against the Miami Marlins. Curiously, Dave Cameron was there in attendance and had something to say today in the electronic pages of Figraphs about what we don't know with regard to the Washington Nationals' decision to shut down Steven Strasburg. That is a topic of some discussion in what follows. Also in what follows, the Yankees. At one point, they were 10 games up in the AL East. Now they are only one of those things. That is, games up in the AL East. What caused that slide for the New York Yankees? And perhaps more importantly, I asked this of Dave Cameron, do the things that caused that slide, are those conditions still present on the current iteration of the New York Yankees as they stand on September 10th, 2012? Also noted in this edition of the podcast, Andrew Werner. He's a left-handed pitcher for the San Diego Padres, but he wasn't that two years ago. Two years ago, he was a pitcher in the Independent Frontier League. What is the thing that we don't know about pitchers? that can allow one to slip through the cracks so thoroughly and then end up succeeding in the major leagues. That's another thing we discuss in what follows. There's probably more. Regardless of all of that, this is, in fact, Fangraphs Audio. It does, in fact, feature the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron, and it begins, of course, right now. You said that, and I'm not um, revealing anything here. You actually mentioned that in your post. Yes, I traveled. You traveled. I, I obliterated the blogger and his basement stereotype and went and watched a game. Two yeah. games, actually. Well, okay, wait. Well, so um, we know that one of the games you saw was the Strasbourg game. Yes, so, I also stayed for the game the next day. You stayed. You stayed at the for game. The- uh, well, for the Saturday game, they had a Saturday afternoon game. So you didn't Friday stay night, at Saturday you didn't afternoon. stay at National Stadium though. That would be ridiculous. Well, you know, right. uh, I don't I don't want to give away my secret hiding places yeah. in, in stadiums where I sleep. But uh, yeah, no, I I did not spend the night at National Park. What happened to that? Uh, what happened in that other game? What was going on then? In the Saturday game? Yeah. Uh, the Marlins uh, and Nationals played a game. Yeah. And then in the bottom of the ninth inning, a uh, tornado showed up with massive rain and thunderstorm. And so they had to wait like three hours to play the bottom of the ninth inning. I did not stick around for that. No, I you didn't. Took, took shelter and went and had dinner. And then they continued without me later. Like a proper tornado? Uh, it wasn't like the tornado wasn't right at the stadium, but there was a tornado warning on 95 where I was supposed to be driving home. Yeah. And the thunderstorm was super ominous and knocked out power and did a bunch of damage. Oh, yeah. And this happened, I mean, well, I guess actually uh, there was, a, over the weekend, there was a tornado um, in Breezy Point, or on Breezy Point, I guess it's an island, uh, which is part of the Rockaway uh, Rockaway Beach area, sort of an island off Queens. Ah, uh, okay. So tornadoes in... Geographical knowledge for baseball listeners. Well, yeah, uh, I, do, I just know this because my stepmother's family has a place on Breezy Point, and I spent okay. some weeks there as a youth. In any case... Uh, this not a. Uh, my point was, it's not a meteorological incident confined only to 
the Midwest or the plains and, and uh, the southeast that exists elsewhere, but you do get uh, massive thunderstorms in that region. Yeah, and this one, like, came on really fast. I mean, living in North Carolina, I'm used to thunderstorms in the afternoon and the summer. It was, like, a regular thing. But this one, I mean, we were sitting, we had, you know, a pretty good view of the skyline on Saturday, and you could basically see these dark rolling clouds coming toward the stadium, and I got a text from the Dark Overlord, who was not at Saturday's game, and said, hey, by the way, just so you know, big storm will be there soon. And about 10 minutes later, the game was halted, and there was uh, sideways wind and rain. Oh, God. Well, that's uh, well. Good that you got out alive then. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, all right. Um, you saw that game. Did anything interesting happen that second game? Uh, Gorkis Hernandez hit a home run, which I did not know was humanly possible. Uh, Mike Stanton hit a home run, which I did know was possible, and apparently uh, only happens or happens frequently in, in Nationals Park. I asked a friend of mine who sees a lot of games if he'd seen Stanton hit a home run, and he's like, "Yeah, he's hit like 40 of them here." <laughs> he's like, "Every time he comes to Washington, he goes yard." And uh, Bryce Harper actually outdid him on Saturday and hit one in the upper deck in right field, which was uh, maybe the longest home run I've seen in person in several years. Oh, well, that's a, that's a very exciting. Um, of course, Stanton and Harper are – I don't. I mean, what? I don't need to say this. They're two of the more exciting young talents. But they, it, it must have been um, – it must have been pleasant to see them playing in the same game. Yeah, right. Uh, this was my uh, first chance to see Harper live. Uh, so I saw Strasburg live for the first time and Harper live for the first time in the same weekend. So that wasn't too bad. And I got a couple of uh, Giancarlo Stanton home runs and uh, some interesting comebacks. All in all, it was a pretty good weekend. Okay. So <clears throat> you saw Steven Strasburg. That's not a person you're going to see pitch, at least for the remainder of the season, um, because he was informed, I think maybe a little bit surprisingly, um, or at least not according to the schedule as most people understood it, he was informed after that game, in fact, that he would not be making another start this season. Right. They actually told him the next morning. But, yeah, they decided after that outing that that would be his last start. Uh, Davey Johnson, I think, had some influence in this decision where this, everyone together had kind of decided, or Rizzo and Johnson and the front office had kind of decided that he would make one more start after Friday night on the road in New York. Um, but Johnson has expressed some concern that the impending shutdown, as they continually call it, uh, was affecting Strasburg's focus, and uh, he thought that Strasburg's struggles were related to the distraction of the shutdown and not necessarily something physical. But uh, if that was the case, and if Johnson's on to something, it was likely that Strasburg was going to have another bad start next Wednesday, so what was the point of rolling him out there in order to have two consecutive poor outings end of season? Yeah. Now, uh I first want to address the title of your post. It's called The Strasbourg Shutdown and What We Don't Know. Um, I'm curious, and uh, you can answer this however you want, of course, um, is what we don't know, is that something that you do know but you're not at liberty to share, or is it actually things that we don't know? No, it's literally things we don't know. And I think these are things that the we here is not just fangraphs readers or writers. It is we as the people who follow baseball, including the people – in the game, who work for the teams. I mean, you know, with all due respect to Mike Rizzo and his staff, they're guessing here, too. I mean, anything to do with pitcher injuries um, and reasonable workloads and trying to predict future pitcher health is dart-throwing at best for pretty much anyone. Um, you know, we can say some things in generalities, like, you know, this kind of arm angle might be more conducive to health than this other type of delivery or you know, pitching more will put you at somewhat more risk than pitching less. Um, but when it comes to specific pitchers and specific cases and specific numbers, we're, we're really all guessing. Right. So 
so why shut a pitcher down then um, as opposed to especially if you're in a playoff race um, not shutting not shutting him down especially since as you mentioned in your post uh, there hasn't been as you say a sea change in how often pitchers are getting hurt yeah I mean so essentially the nationals have decided to err on the side of caution uh, I think there's a couple of factors uh, at play so one is the probably the second half of the post that I talked about in that if you believe, as the Nationals apparently do, that Strasburg is wearing down and is not as effective as he was earlier in the season, um, then you might not think that he's going to be all that effective on October, or at least relative to the other options. If you think Strasburg's velocity is going to continue to fall a little bit, his command is going to get a little shakier, and this workload's going to catch up with him and his stuff's going to continue to degrade, uh, Strasburg in October is not going to be a Strasburg of May. Um, so at that point, I think you're you're looking at a guy who you're, you can theoretically replace without taking a massive hit to your team's playoff odds. And at that point, then the, the trade-off between um, security and caution, uh, there's, not a, there's not a big cost there, so you might as well play it on the safe side. Um, on the other hand, I think you know the argument is uh, that a guy like Ross, De- Ross Detweiler is going to take Strasburg's in the playoffs is pitching really well at the moment, and uh, he didn't have a great start on Saturday, but his overall season has been very impressive, and, you know, the Nationals have a lot of left-handers in their bullpen. They don't necessarily need to shift him to the bullpen uh, in October. It's not going to really weaken their relief core by not having him there. So if you have a guy in Detweiler who's pitching well, giving you some confidence, a guy in Strasburg whose stuff is starting to trend downwards a little bit and who's never pitched, you know, this deep in the season before and is kind of going into uncharted territory, if you're not sure that you're going to get a better expected result, then you might as well just play it safe and, and keep his workload down. Now, um, a person, I think, could make the argument or could at least raise the point that even a diminished Strasburg um, <clears throat> is better than a lot of pitchers, maybe even better than, than Ross Detweiler. We, we could, or we might suppose that he is, um, not, not necessarily the, the Strasburg that pitched this past Friday, but that you know, it's also very possible that Strasburg wouldn't be pitching like that continuously. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any question that if you said, hey, you can have Steven Strasburg or Ross Detweiler in the playoffs, and there's no injury concern, uh, you take Strasburg, even the recent version of Strasburg over Detweiler. Um, so I don't think this is a case where they're looking at it and saying, well, Strasburg isn't one of our four best pitchers. I mean, there really is uh, something of a trade-off here where you're saying how much expected performance in October, are we willing to sacrifice for some offsetting gain in expected future health? And the reality is we don't know what the expected gain in future health is, but at the same time we also don't know what the drop in performance is. Like Both of these variables are somewhat unknown, and there's certainly a line at some point where uh, future health gains more than compensate for the loss of uh, playoff performance. And so you know, if you think that you're going to get a healthy Strasburg for an extra two years by shutting him down now, and the performance gain in the playoffs is going to be half a run per nine innings, then that's probably a trade-off you should make. If you think you don't know whether you're going to get even more an, uh, an extra 20 innings out of him next year because of shutting him down and the performance difference is one and a half runs per nine innings, then this is a bad idea. So, I mean, there's a, there's a line somewhere in there where future health and future durability uh, and future performance are worth shutting him down now. But I guess the point that I was trying to make in the post is we don't really know what these variables are. Now, uh, so uh, right after my wife and I got married, I mean, she had uh, 
this this segue makes sense. I trust. <laughs> Please trust me. Um, we, we got married uh, before we got married, though. She had been accepted to uh, to a program to teach in France, right? So we got married essentially at the beginning of August, and she was going to go away to France for like a year or nine months at least at the beginning of September. Um, so you know, we got married and we had like a honeymoon, sort of an extended one because uh, neither of us our semesters began. <clears throat> and there was sort of a weird thing that was like. I don't know what, exactly what day she left, but we'll say September 1st. So uh, on August 31st, that's like a weird day, right? Because we know she's going away the next day. And so in a certain sense, it's almost like she's already gone because it's like what what are you going to do that last day that's like you can't start any new – you know, it's not like life is normal, right? You can't start any new like projects together or whatever. You're not, you're not really continuing anything. It's just the end and you're painfully aware that the next day – uh, she's going to be going away. I assume that at some level, this is happening to Strasburg or any pitcher who has a certain innings limit, right? You know that the end is coming, and you know that you're not building to anything. In fact, um, you know the end is the end is very near, and when the end comes, that's it. There's nothing after that. So I'm curious as to whether this situation is revealed. Perhaps that there needs to be some amendment to the way that innings caps are enforced for pitchers because otherwise there's this sort of empty sense of of a pitcher just ending and building to nothing more. Well, I guess the, the question would be is whether pitchers are actually building anything to begin with or whether every part is just a discrete beginning and ending unto itself, right? So, like, uh, it's not that pitchers are you know, constructing a house, and then at some point they lay a foundation and they build the walls and then they stop and they have an unfinished house. I mean, their goal is kind of self-contained within each game, right? So uh, you could just say that um, Strasburg's end was no different than any other pitcher's end except for the timing of when it came, right? So, like, uh, I, I would say that a pitcher who made the playoffs, pitched all the way through, and they got eliminated in the first round, his situation is the same, and his season is now over, uh, and baseball is continuing to be played, but that doesn't mean that he didn't get to have a satisfying end to his season. Right. I guess it's just a. It seems to me like, in you know, who knows what what percentage of the population it would it would um, affect? Maybe it's just you know five percent, but it would seem to me to have some effect on a on um on a sort of competitive on a, on a very competitive individual. Right, someone who who wants to win and not being given that opportunity. Well, I mean, there's no doubt that Strasburg is competitive. And he's not happy about the shutdown. I mean, his comment Saturday, you know, he's not ever, he's not sure he's ever going to be able to accept this. It's not something he's in favor of. Um, this is being forced upon Strasburg. So I don't think there's any doubt that um, he's not taking this particularly well. Um, but he, he understands that he doesn't really have a choice. Um, that's not his call. Uh, essentially, it's the organization's call, and then you know, his agent has some influence on. Uh, how strenuously he's resisting, um, but I think Strasburg, you know, to him, to his situation, understands that uh, this isn't the end of his career, right? This isn't his final start. Like his picture is larger than 2012, and so if this was, you know, the end of his career, if he was a 42-year-old man, they would be handling it entirely different. And I think maybe this, you know, unsatisfying end would hold more weight. But if Strasburg can look at it and say, "Hey, look, my goal is to still be pitching in 2020." Uh, then this is just a small blip on the radar. Now, true or false, Max Scherzer is just as good as Steven Strasburg. False. (laughs) 
True or false? Max Scherzer has been really good recently. True. Yeah. And he throws his fastball very hard. Also true. Yeah. Anyway. That's Are we still playing true or false? Or yeah, I, that's a I meaningless segue, but I wanted to make sure that Max Scherzer's name was invoked at some point during during this episode of the podcast. He was so good Prob- the other day again. Probably better that we're talking about this now than talking about Max Scherzer during your wife's trip to France. Yeah, I guess, um, well, I mean, whatever. She doesn't pay attention to me whether she's on this continent or another, so it doesn't really matter. Next year I like how you, uh, when you mentioned that you got married right before she left, was there, like, fear motivating this marriage? Like, you knew she was going to go hang out with Parisians who could, you know, uh, speak in accents and cook her bread, and you were like, I need to lock this down? Uh, yeah, well, actually... Um, from my experience, French men don't really regard that as a boundary. Ah, that's probably true. <clears throat> yeah. Um, but they're also, well, painting with the broadest possible brush, of course, um, they're also kind of silly. Uh, <laughs> so they're not really that great of a threat, turns out. <laughs> so basically you think, like, French men are terrible. No, 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 I, no, no, I didn't say that. I'm just saying they're a little bit silly. Okay, yeah. so the, when you put this podcast on the site later, you should be like, Dave Cameron analyzes all things, and Carson Sestouli uh, insults the country. No, I, I'm not insulting the country. I, I like France quite a bit. I'm just saying, um, on average, Frenchmen are a little bit silly. They're just, okay. and so you can kind of, they're not really that threatening, it turns out. <laughs> um, yeah, so I made sure to invoke Max Scherzer. Uh, that was, uh, hey, I have a question. Um, yeah. And uh, this might fall into the category of you don't care at all. But uh, I don't know if you've noticed that Andrew Werner, who I think like a year ago was an independent uh, league pitcher, had yeah. um, another like pretty decent start, and that makes four yeah. decent starts now. Some of, yeah. some some starts more than decent. Um, I guess this has happened before, but it's always sort of surprising when it does that a pitcher who you know, he's, he goes undrafted. Um, he's not signed as a free agent after the draft. Goes to the independent leagues. Somehow does something there that maybe is or is maybe not different, and then shows up and turns out to be a perfectly capable major league pitcher. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that when you look at predicting pitchers in general, um, especially like valuing young pitchers. Uh, they really are lottery tickets, and it, it, almost anything is possible. And so it's one of the reasons I'm always a little hesitant to put like a feeling on a pitcher, because you're like, oh, yeah, this guy profiles the number five starter, unless he adds a cutter or a, a significantly better breaking ball, or mysteriously adds 10 miles an hour to his fastball, in which case he can be an ace. <laughs> That's not really a very useful uh, comparison if you say like his range of possible outcomes is anywhere from bad to amazing. But that's kind of the reality of pitchers. I mean, we've seen this with Tom Wilhelmson, who's now the Mariners closer, uh, was out of baseball for five years, tending bar, decided to show up at a tryout, started throwing 99, the Mariners signed him, and a year later he was their closer. You know, it's one of these uh, interesting stories about how there was just a guy in normal everyday life serving alcohol to people who could throw 100 miles an hour. And, uh, you know, there's more of these stories than you might think. I mean, obviously Jim Morris got a movie made about it in The Rookie, but this this seems to happen not all that uh, rarely, and uh, some pitcher who's just completely off the radar uh, turns into a, a pretty good starting pitcher. I think even this year, you know, Wade Miley wasn't out of baseball, but I don't think he was considered a, you know, a very highly thought of prospect. And on merit, he should probably finish in the top five in Cy Young voting. 
Now, um, and I guess we, we have other examples uh, like this too. I think Chris Medlin, um, uh, he, he was signed, I think. I don't know if he ever played independent league ball. Maybe he did. It doesn't really matter. Uh, the point is that he made it through all whatever, you know, 700 rounds of the draft. And uh, he still ended up on the other side, um, unaffiliated to a, to a major league team. Braves signed him at some point, and now, um, well, of course, I'm talking about Brandon Beachy. Did I say Chris Medlin? Yeah, I was like, that sounds like Brandon Beachy's story. Yeah, I'm actually that's Brandon Beachy's life story uh, yeah. that I've just recounted. Um, uh, but I guess it, it happens. Now you you mentioned a couple things. What are sort of um, the things that ki- that do happen? that can make a, a pitcher fall like that? What are the reasons why he falls, and what are the reasons why he might be successful despite a fall like that? Well, I think one of the things that we see with pitchers is, this, is stature and fastball velocity are probably the main filters that scouts use because they're the easiest things to see. So if you're 5'9 and you throw 85, it doesn't really matter what else you do. Your odds of getting drafted are very low. If you're um, a guy who then add velocity later in life, which has happened. If you go from throwing 85 as an 18-year-old to 93 as a 21-year-old, that can have a massive difference in your in your outcome. And, I mean, I think we even look at, like, Stephen Strasburg wasn't considered a high uh, top prospect coming out of high school, um, partially because of his weight. He was nearly 300 pounds, and he wasn't throwing that hard. And then he got to college, lost a bunch of weight, and started throwing 102 miles an hour, and he was the best pitching prospect anyone had ever seen. So we can see these drastic physical transformations um, have a huge, huge uh, change in a pitcher's profile. And so for a guy like Brandon Beachy, who wasn't much of a stuff guy, uh, all of a sudden added some velocity. His curveball got better. Uh, he, you know, his changes um, became a pretty good pitch. I mean, this is a guy who simply got better uh, after scout time, um, and that's something that's just really difficult to predict. Yeah, um and I think that's also maybe roughly the story with Dan Straley too. It's it's hard to say that Dan Straley is going to be, you know, whatever. But he, he had a fantastic minor league season, and I think that uh, partially that was due to adding like, you know, five or six miles per hour to his fastball after being taken out of Marshall, maybe. Maybe I couldn't tell you where Dan Straley was. Right. Um, you mentioned uh, Strasburg going to college, and this is sort of a, a passing thought I had the other day. Um, Two of the probably, you know, I don't think you'd have to argue very hard to say that two of the best players uh, in recent uh, history or, you know, basically at all time at this point are um, Barry Bonds as a hitter and Roger Clemens as a pitcher. Um, We recently had a a pitching war added to the site and Roger Clemens um, comes out second all time by that by that measurement. Um, he has 145, 146 war as a pitcher. Uh, Barry Bonds has the second highest war as a batter. Um, I believe both of those players went to college. Um, this is true. Yeah. yeah um, Barry Bonds to Arizona State. Yep. Uh, Roger Clemens to University of Texas. Correct. Generally speaking, I think uh, studies show that um, if you you know if you were to take two prospects of equal talent. Send one of them to college, and then one of them to you know, uh, a ball. Uh, given the amount of uh, repetitions that a ball allows relative to college, a ball is probably better at developing the player. Um, is it surprising to you, or what? 
what might it tell us or what doesn't it tell us that two of um, the best players in baseball ever, um, certainly, certainly of the modern era, went to college? Does it say anything? Well, I think it says you probably can't use generalities in every specific case, right? I mean, like, there are certainly players who had the talent to play pro ball right out of high school who chose to go to college for reasons beyond just their baseball development, whether they just wanted the college experience or they, you know, weren't happy with the money that they were offered coming out of high school um, or their parents were well-educated and really pushed them to get a degree. I mean, I think that there's reasons to go to college that don't necessarily have to do with just maximizing the amount of at-bats or innings that you throw at the minors. Um, and so I think there's going to be certainly cases like Mike Messina, who was you know, a super smart guy, went to Stanford. Um, you know, the reasons he went to college probably aren't related entirely just to baseball. And so um, I think that, you know, we have to be careful when we're saying, okay, high school players who sign out of high school will generally do better than players who sign out of college because we're selecting, you know, the, they, they're getting selected into the draft based on their talent level, which gets identified earlier. At the same time, college players are a little bit more weeded out, right? So um, we're getting more information in those years that they're in college and become, become, become more confident in their abilities. And so a guy like Bonds or Clemens has more chance to show that he has more abilities than perhaps he was assumed to have in high school. Um, so the, I guess if you have a premium college prospect, I don't think you should lower the bar on what he is simply because he's a college prospect relative to a high school prospect. We might have learned more about him over the three years that he was in college that would allow us to project him even better than we did when he was in high school, even though he's the same player. Okay, yeah. Well, I was just curious. I thought I'd yeah. ask you. I thought I'd ask your opinion on it. This has been like uh, quite the quite the day of segues. We've had, you know, Max Scherzer out of nowhere. Uh, your wife. Uh, yeah, potential proclivity for Frenchmen. Uh, no, no, no. She doesn't. My point is, she doesn't. She's married to me. Right. She's monogamous in that capacity as a married yeah, woman. Well, we still discussed the topic. Yeah. Well, I put it out there because the feeling. I said. I said. I. Uh, I said. I don't know if I understand that feeling. That's what I said to to myself. But it seems like it would be similar to this. I mean, I could have done it. Also, I could have discussed it with my my friend Matt, who. Uh, lived here in Madison, but just went away to University of uh, Michigan. Like, I remember hanging out with him the, la- you know, the last day before he left, and it feels, eh, I mean, what, what are we going to do here? We're done. We're done. You're going to come back and visit, but what, you know, we're not doing anything here. We're not building towards anything. People yeah, it's do- interesting to me that you see life in, like from this very macro perspective, right? Like, I think that maybe there's an argument here to be that the – the building is within each day, and it wasn't necessarily over the longer term, right? Like, if you only see value in a relationship that will lead to other days of relationship in the future, but you don't see any value in, like, present-day relationships, that, that might be a personality flaw. Uh, yeah, I think it's a significant personality flaw. I'm not denying that. I'm just saying, I mean, maybe other people have this flaw. Maybe. Uh, you're probably certainly not the only one. Probably certainly. That was, uh, probably certainly. Well, no, so your suggestion is, Cameron, that you should enjoy the moment. I think you should be able to enjoy the moment. Be Maybe not every moment. It should be enjoyed at the expense of the future. But I think if, you know, if we decided that this was the last podcast you were ever going to do and you mailed it in because you couldn't look forward to the next podcast, and you were like, screw it, this is the end of podcasting with Cameron, yeah. this sucks already, uh, you know, then I would suggest that, that, that perhaps there's some current value that you're not extracting. I'm probably good at that. But I, um, 
And again, I only bring this up because this might be a condition that other people have, and maybe it's uh, they haven't articulated it, and this will help. Um, I, for one, do not care for events like isolate, um, making an event out of a situation, which for you know, for example, that I don't necessarily care for the playoffs. Right. You know this because I care more yeah. for the for the constant hum of the regular season. Right. Yeah, we had the discussion last year when you uh, you were like, I don't want to write about them. They're terrible. And I was like, you have to write about them. It's your job. <laughs> it's your job. Right. I would rather write about uh, the Arizona Fall League. Right. Um, Which is odd because that also ends. It does end. Right. And when it's towards the end, I'm like, yeah, whatever. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I only like the thing if it has a sense. I, uh, if there's a sense that it's going to continue into something. Yeah, you sound I, like you should be perpetually involved in startups. Uh, yeah, I know, but I, I mean, that's a different thing too. I, I don't know what I'm doing with a startup. Listen, we we got. I'm gonna talk. We'll talk about one more thing. Um, I assume that people care about this thing. Where one of these two things we're about to talk about. I'll give you a choice. What you prefer to talk about? Okay. Okay. One of the things is the NL MVP. Okay. NL MVP because it's. There's not a clear-cut winner at this moment. Correct. Um, or the Yankees. The Yankees, in in particular, their place in the standings in the AL East. Your choice, Cameron. Uh, let's start with the Yankees, because I think all we'd have to say with the NL MVP is, like, it could be McCutcheon. It could be Posey. We'll find out in a few weeks. And Well, briefly, you don't think it's going to be Ryan Braun? No. I think that Ryan Braun has a 0% chance of winning. Briefly... Do you could you do you see a, a justification for voting for Ryan Braun? Yes, absolutely. I think if your criteria for the NL MVP is simply the best player to play in the league this year, then Ryan Braun has a really solid case. I don't think that most people in the BBWA see the MVP as that, right. and I certainly don't think that they want to give him the award two years in a row because of the drug testing thing last year. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Uh, but so the Yankees. The Yankees are a team. That was, what, in uh, first place by maybe 10 games? Yes, they had a 10-game lead. They had a 10-game lead. Uh, they currently have a one-game lead over the uh, upstart Baltimore Orioles, surprising Baltimore Orioles. Yes, all of the above. Pythagorean, uh, um, wait, uh, I would say like, uh, not evading or stiff-arming. Anyway, Bullying. Huh? Bullying, maybe. Yeah, they they're they've surpassed their Pythagorean record by a considerable amount. Yeah. Yeah. Uh and then the Rays are there two uh just two games out. Um they played poorly, is that the only thing? I mean, or did the somehow did the roster did the uh fundamentally change or did the players on it well, fundamentally change? Yeah, I mean they had some injuries. I mean Mark Teixeira has missed a, a decent chunk of change with calf injury. It looks like he might miss another chunk of change and potentially even the rest of the regular season. Uh, Alex Rodriguez has been on the DL for quite a while. Uh, CC Sabathia went on the DL and his velocity has been down for most of the season. He hasn't pitched like the CC Sabathia of old as of late. Um, so I think you know those are key players. Uh, Curtis Anderson went into a really gigantic slump and hasn't been a very good hitter for a couple of months now. So you know I think these are pillars of the good Yankee team that uh, are underperforming or not performing at all. Uh, and when you take guys of that level off the field or, 
you know, make their contributions significantly lower, it's going to have a drastic impact. And, you know, obviously the Orioles and Rays have gotten hot and continued to play well, and the Yankees have not played very well. Um, I still think the Yankees are probably the best team in that division, but, you know, at less than 100%, they're not so much better than Baltimore or Tampa Bay that the outcome is obvious. Uh, right. So uh, the, the, the problems that have led to them um, giving away this lead, squandering, one might say? Squandering is a good word. Yeah. Um, are those problems they still have right now? Or to what degree yeah. do they still have those problems? Well, Sabathia is still currently struggling, and his velocity is still down. Uh, Teixeira is still hurt, or hurt again, at least. Gray Anderson has, you know, had a nice night the other night coming off the bench, but he hasn't been what he was last year or earlier in the season. Um, so, you know, I think there, there's, uh, you know, hope that Granderson could turn things around. He's still got good power, but his contact rates has, has begun to suffer again. Um, so I think with all these guys, there's legitimate concern. It's not just, uh, well, well, let's wait for these guys to regress to the mean. We're having bad luck on, you know, batting average on balls in play or, you know, the, the timing of when we get our hits. Uh, it's really fundamental issues of health and performance from key players, and um, I don't think any of these questions have been uh, put to rest. Um, do you think that it would uh, speak poorly to a um, of a sports writer were he to suggest that he derived nothing but glee uh, from seeing the Yankees uh, collapse? Uh, no, I think in general Yankee hatred is uh, uh, somewhat accepted. And, you know, I mean, I guess the example I always use, I have a, a good friend of mine is a Yankee fan, and I, the example I always use of him that I'm sure I stole from someone else and I didn't create myself, but I still like it, is that rooting for the Yankees is like rooting for the casino. Like, if you went to Vegas and you wanted everyone there to lose their money to the guy who already has a giant vault of money, uh, that would kind of be perceived as, you know, kind of mean-hearted. And the Yankees are the casino of baseball. They have a giant vault. They have four million World Series championships. They have, you know, monuments in their outfield. Uh, the Yankees have what everyone else in baseball wants, and they're trying to continue to have it while other teams do not have it. And so, you know, if you go to Vegas and root for the casino, then you kind of know what it's like to root for the Yankees. Most people do not root for the casino. Right. And, uh, well, except in this, I mean... I guess people do, though. There are a lot of Yankees fans. Right. Well, there are people who root for the Yankees uh, because they're, you know, born in New York and their family right. rooted for the Yankees, and I, I don't hold anything against them. I mean, you know, you can't control where you're born or the type of family you're born into. Right. So I'm not saying the Yankee fans are bad people, but the perception of wanting the Yankees to win uh, or wanting the Yankees to lose, in your case, or, you right. know, uh, other people's case, essentially comes from that uh, jealousy of their success. Yeah, and also just the fact that, um, right, like you like you noted, like they're you know they're going to win in the long run. They're not, right. and so, and but at the same time, you know, you also expect that there will be moments when they will not play well, and though I guess there's pleasure to be derived. Uh, it reminds us that uh, even though. Uh, uh, <laughs> Even though life is uh, dark and frightening, there are moments of light. Right. Yes. I mean, I think the Orioles this year are an exciting, interesting story, and it's the kind of thing that you know, if you don't have a rooting interest in the AL East, you know, watching the Orioles in the playoffs uh, would be fun. I think just for the, the 
joy of seeing something different, uh, seeing a different type of player, firing up a fan base that has basically been downtrodden for two decades. Um, that's the kind of thing that, you know, the average fan not of a team not in the AL East should probably be rooting for. And the Yankees are the villain standing in the way of that. So rooting against them is pretty easy. If the Orioles were to be in the playoffs, uh, you know, say they were say they were to be in a seven-game series, who would be their uh, who who would be in their starting rotation for that? Well, you got Wei in Wei in Chen for Who's sure. Who's been uh, fine? Who, yeah, I mean, he got destroyed in his last start, but he's been pretty good for the. I mean, uh, better than people expected certainly. Um, and he's been a you know a quality slightly above average major league pitcher. Mm-hmm. Um, and you adjust for the opponents and park he pitches in, maybe even well above average. Uh, a healthy Jason Hamill would probably be in that mix. And then you start to mix and match a little bit. Uh, Joe Saunders could potentially be an option. Um, you know, they've got a lot of moving parts in that rotation. And when I was talking with a friend of mine over the weekend, uh, we were asking whether, you know, if a team got into a one-game playoff, would any manager have the cojones to just essentially eschew the starting pitcher and go with a bullpen game to give themselves the best chance to win that wild-card play-in game? And we you know, looked at each other like Baltimore. Like, we don't know the sexual world would do this, but if any team ever should ever just uh, toss the idea of a starting pitcher out the window and go with a bullpen game, it's the Baltimore Orioles. And, I, and you know, if they happen to get into that play, playing game, I'm sure this is an article I will be writing uh, strenuously suggesting that the Orioles just, you know, use 11 or 12 pitchers and get through that game uh, with as few repetitive matchups as possible. Right. I mean, you'd go, you mean, just play the platoons as much as you yeah. can. I mean, in the first inning, I think you just start out with, you know, if you think that there's three right-handers coming up to start the game, then start the, start Pedro's drop. I mean, you just, uh, I think from day one or, you know, pitch one in that wild card play in game, considering the depth of the Orioles bullpen and the relative obscurity of most of their starting pitchers, uh, there's no reason to not just start playing matchups from the first pitch of the game. Who, uh, where would you put, uh, because if there is an ace of the staff, it's Ben Hamill. Yeah. Um, where would you, at that point, where would you deploy the, the sort of nominal ace? Uh, honestly, I think I would save him for a game one of a playoff or a high leverage late inning situation. So I think if you start off in that play-in game, playing the matchups, using your bullpen, you know you're going to have an off day uh, between that play-in game and the start of the next series anyway. So even if you get 20 or 25 pitches out of every member of your bullpen, they should still be available for game one. Using them in an aggressive manner won't take them out of play for game one, where if you use Hamill in game one or in the wild card playing game, he's not available for game one of the playoffs. Uh, so I would probably try and get through that game without using him unless it came to a situation where I've had to play the matchup so much because there's been a lot of base runners and it's the sixth or seventh inning and I'm running out of good relievers. At that point, then I would, and it, you know, assuming it's still a competitive game and the outcome is not clearly decided, then I would put Hamill in in order to try and keep the game close and try and win it. But I, I would attempt to get through the game without using him so that he could start game one in the playoffs. All right. Yeah, now you fulfill your duty now. Yeah, thank you. Does it feel good? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, like validation from Sestuli is my life's goal. No, I don't think it is. In any case, uh, stick around momentarily, but uh, we'll bid to do to you for the purposes of the podcast. That's Dave Cameron. Dave, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Aren't we actually kind of bidding adieu to the people, right? Because we're still going to be talking, but you're basically bidding adieu to the listeners. We'll say, yeah, but I I think I qualified it for the purposes of the podcast. 
It's sort okay. of it's well, a, it's clarifying for accuracy sake. It's an artifice. It's an artifice, Cameron, but we're participating in it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, do you want to make the do you want to make the argument that all of life is an artifice? Is that what you want to say? No, we can do that next week. Okay. That's Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Stooley, and this has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.